Welcome to the Catholic Reading Challenge. I'm Mike. And I'm Jess. And the only thing we like better than reading is talking about what we are reading with friends. In 2019, we are reading through a new category each month. So listen in and read along. And remember, as Mortimer J. Adler said, in the case of good books, the point is not to see how many of them you can get through, but rather how many can get through. Hey everybody, welcome to the month of August, even though we're doing our podcast, the second podcast, which was for the July category, Biographies. Yes, a little late on that, but that's fine. There are certain times you just don't want a podcast. I know. The kids go to sleep. It's been a long day. We have four kids. And you got to have the energy. You got to have the spunk. You got to have the passion to do a good pod. And sometimes you just want, Jessica would like to make her Bengal Spice Tea read a book. I'll go sit on the couch, maybe watch some Mystery Science Theater 3000, some soccer games. Sometimes you just want to do that. And before you know it, you're already out of the month of the book category. And it's crazy. It's crazy. You you panic and you get depressed and then you have to pull yourself out of the the downward spiral, which is not getting the second podcast in in time. Yeah. I don't think we felt too bad about it. No, um, not at all, actually. Yeah. (laughs) But we were actually quite into our books this month this was a great oh it was so good i needed a month like this i don't want to say that i haven't there are certain months i did not like the books like the travel i did not like it the dune dune 2 was just okay yeah but this book is one of those books that makes it worth the whole challenge that we got to uh we got to read this book it was awesome so i'm really really excited jessica Go ahead. You were going to say something? Well, I was saying on that note, why don't you get us started? I don't think I want to get started yet. Oh, okay. I think I just want to do a little little small talk. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, we don't have to rush into it. No, we don't. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. So, Jessica, what have you been enjoying in your life recently? I just got back from a wonderful homeschool conference, and it was very rejuvenating. Wow. Sounds like a and refreshing a raging party. It was the keg stands. Yes, no, no, not not so much. But um, it was great. It was the simply Charlotte Mason together retreat. The in, Charlotte Mason keg stand. I wonder what that would look like. <laughs> it was in uh, Stone Mountain, Georgia. Beautiful place. It was it was just perfect. And this was the first year simply Charlotte Mason did it, and it was great. And they had a it was an awesome retreat. Learned a ton. Learned how to teach math the Charlotte Mason way and teach foreign language. And now I've got my whole schoolroom all organized, ready to start homeschool year in a couple, in a week, I guess. It's great, Jessica. And in all seriousness, um, you coming back from something like this, everything that you learn, everything that you glean, the inspiration you get from the, the Charlotte Mason type approach to education, the classical great books approach to education, a distinctly Catholic view of education, I feel like, um, I don't know how to put this, like I can just cherry pick from you because you've done all the legwork. And I, yeah, I, I've been a teacher now for 15 <laughs> years. And you come back from the conference and I'm like, all right, I'll use that in the classroom. I'll use that in the classroom. I'll use that in the classroom. So I'm really excited about it. And it's funny too. I have to be honest. Again, I say that a lot. I'm just going to stop saying I have to be honest because that makes it sound like... Like you tell a lot of... Like I lie a lot. I have to be honest. I need to stop saying I have to be honest. But... Um, I didn't. I wasn't homeschooled. I wasn't um, up exposed to homeschooling. I had those couple homeschooling like families in my church growing up, and yeah. they were a little bit um, different, right? 
I, um, I can speak. I was you like know. the denim overalls yeah. and stuff like that that the mom made, and that's cool. I don't want to hate on that. No, if, if I, it sounds like I'm hating on them. I'm not hating on it, but it was just foreign to me. And so when you said, "Hey, this is kind of what I'm feeling with our kids," um, at first I was hesitant, but I, I have enough respect in you and your opinions that I know that you're not just gonna pull something out of the air. And I'll have to tell you, um, it is completely revolutionized the way that I view education. And there's no way that our, our boys and uh, soon Stella could have a better education than they're currently having. I, I mean that totally. Oh, thanks. So, well, I agree. I mean, I, I, I guess that's why I'm so passionate about it. And it's, it's like my education too. That's the best part. I get to like read books Yeah, with that is them cool. Cause I wasn't, I didn't go through a classical yeah. great books education at all at any time in my, in my upbringing. And it's funny now I've kind of in a homespun way of moved in that direction. And that's really part of this, the culture of this podcast. That's yeah. not separate. This idea of reading and how it pushes us towards truth and right. beauty and goodness. Um, so it's so cool for me to use these things in the classroom. And actually, this kind of connects. I'm going to use this as a segue to what I want to talk <laughs> about in an intuitive way. Yeah. Like there's recognition of reality, right? Right. Um, that we see things and we're like, let's do this because this corresponds with reality. And being yeah, to able to kind of... the per- the human person, yeah. It's almost like the same... Um, disadvantage and advantage that I have as a convert to Catholicism. Yeah. Um, it's incredible that my kids, they're Catholic. And, yeah. and their whole memory of their entire life, my children will be being Catholic. For me, I will always be a convert. Right. And that will be a defining aspect, one of the most defining aspects of my of my, of my spiritual, of, of my relationship with, with Christ and, and me being a follower of Christ. And I'm really, really grateful for that, right? There's things that I can do and there's perspectives that I have that are really cool. There's also um, all these years that I didn't have the richness of the church tradition, right? Yeah. And it's the same thing with like classical kind of Aristotelian, uh, Thomistic thought and ideas. I- I'm a convert. Yeah. And I didn't yeah. grow up with any of that. I grew up with, you know, just... I, the books weren't really emphasized in my home. Um, learning and kind of the richness of education. I don't even remember being mentioned. I was never really encouraged to read or anything like that. And like a lot of people, this is not disparaging my parents or anything like that. But I'm a convert, too, to a way of, of thinking yeah. and teaching and education that I came to in, in like an intuitive way. Yeah. And now I understand kind of the philosophical and anthropological and theological underpinnings. And it's it's really, really exciting. Yeah. I, yeah. Oh, go ahead, babe. I'm sorry. No, I, I think we're actually in the middle of a movement where what you're describing, like you're describing the things that our kids have that we didn't, like that's just not going to be, they're never going to even know what it was like to not grow up with, with uh, this this way of education or this this um, this relationship with books, learning, etc. And I think that's kind of a I think that's a movement that's actually taking place. Whether it be with just changes across the board in, in education and what you see happening either in the homeschool movement or in certain classical schools, and so kids are are starting to get the kind of education now from the early years, mm-hmm. which is really foundational and critical like you can't just make up for lost time like get into high school and start reading great books if you never read the books that have to get you there i teach seniors and i can tell you that is the case yeah once they get to a point people go i've taught middle school i've taught every grade in high school 
I've taught ever, almost every history class that's offered at our high school, almost every English class, almost mm-hmm. every theology class. I haven't taught ethics, which I'm okay with. But when they become seniors, there's a lot of habits that are set in place. Oh, my goodness. Yes. When I first started studying philosophy, I will never forget my first philosophy class at Holy Apostles College and Seminary. It was um, the, the kind of the, the survey class for ancient and medieval philosophy that you had to take if you didn't have a undergrad in, in philosophy. Okay. All right. So we, I get in this online classroom, and we had to read Aristotle. And if anyone's – the funny thing, I was watching an interview with Peter Kreft today, and Matt Frad was doing the interview. And both of them were like, Aristotle got it right, but we prefer to read Plato. Because <laughs> Plato's more beautiful to read, and but Aristotle is truthful, and that's uh-huh. and, and if you read Aristotle, that really is the case. Like you, you read Aristotle, it's um, it's not beach reading, right? Yeah. Like if anyone tells you, maybe there are some people that when they go to the beach, they they put that under their arm. With their, <laughs> I don't know who they are. It's, it's pretty rigorous and and yeah. and and, tough. and that's actually part of what makes Aristotle Aristotle. Um, but I remember I was in this class, and I and I I was the first person to kind of raise my hand virtually and I said what I thought about Aristotle and I completely whiffed it. Like it was the worst, most epic. It's like when you're a kid and you wanted to do a trick on your skateboard in front of your friends and you like face plant. So you just didn't know what you were talking about. Is that what you're saying? Well, I I thought Aristotle was being um, sarcastic when he was talking about like his humility and not knowing things. I thought, all right, he's just, this is being... okay. And I remember the person who corrected me is is my good friend Jordan Haddad. <laughs> and it is a long story. We ended up they ended up moving to the area, and he went to Catholic um, University to get his PhD. But we met in this online class when he was in New Orleans, and he corrected me, and I was so mad at him. Uh, he just like one up me, and I was so mad at him. I was like, "Who is this?" But the reason I say all that was philosophy and the studying of philosophy and the studying of Thomas of Aquinas and Aristotle was so hard. For yeah. Me. It was so, and it was so hard because I was learning a new way of thinking yeah. at at thirty six, thirty seven years old. And that's hard. Oh my gosh, Jessica! Yeah. There, there were so many times where I wanted to abandon ship. You remember this? I'm yeah. going to go into the theology program, or I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to. I just don't know if I can do this. But now that I've come out of the tail end, I've completed the program um, this past fall, and the reworking of my mind. Again, I'm a convert, yeah. and and I what I hope I can do to people is go. I'm blessed by the the journey that I went on, but I, I don't want you to have to go through that process like with our kids. Right. I want you to get here sooner than I did. Or can, I don't if want you to have to take the long if way. If you grow up yeah. with the right mind. Right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. How great is that? And that's what yeah. I tell my seniors. My whole thing as an educator, as a teacher is I don't want you to do what I did. I want you to surpass me. And, and with that being said, it's funny how you were saying that thing about a movement about how um, our kids are going to get the benefit of something that we didn't have. And it's funny. Usually movements come out of crisis. Usually movements come out of the antidote for what's happening. And let me read this quote. The book that I read this this past month was the G.K. Chesterton biography, St. Thomas Aquinas. Okay, okay. Chesterton's biography of Aquinas. Chesterton's, okay. um, when he wrote about Aquinas. And I have to kind of give a um, disclosure. It's a biography in the loosest sense of the word he presented like it's a biography but he kind of uses it as a launching point and i'm going to get on this when i talk about chesterton chesterton is here's the analogy that i'll use okay i went to see the dead and company play about a month ago was it in june 
Yeah. And I'm a big fan of classic rock and roll. I'm a big fan of, of jam bands. And I, I know this sounds funny because I'm this like Orthodox Catholic, but I really like listening to the Grateful Dead. And I, I, I probably listen to them more than any other band. Just because it's, it's not because they're my favorite band, uh-huh. but it's just a really easy music to have on when you're doing other stuff. Like you yeah. can just have. So Grateful Dead, Jari Garcia is, is no longer living. Um, and a couple years ago, I think like 2016, um, Bob Ware, who's the other guitarist in the Grateful Dead, wanted to start touring again. And they were trying to find someone else to play guitar. So they got John Mayer to yeah. play guitar. Now, John Mayer up to this point is like this kind of this pop culture yeah. like handsome dude like girls screaming at his concert but if you actually listen to his music he's an incredible guitarist yeah I'm getting I'm bringing this back trust oh me. yeah I, so I'm with you I went to see them play with my good friend Lachlan and they they played for four hours they started at seven and they played to eleven it was unbelievable it was one of the best shows I've ever been to if they were playing tonight I would go find a way to go see them play um, but when you when you watch John Mayer play with the Dead and Company, it's the two drummers from the Grateful Dead, Bob Weir, and, and there's another bassist. It's not the Grateful Dead's bassist, and there's another keyboardist. John Mayer is so talented. Oh yeah. When he does his like guitar solos, like it's kind of his own thing, but it's still part of the song. Yeah. But it's very it's very self indulgent, like the guitar solo. But you want like you want John Mayer to be self indulgent on his guitar solo because yeah. he is a genius. Yeah. G.K. Chesterton is very self indulgent with his intellectual guitar solos when you read his works. Sure. Are you catching what I'm talking about? Totally, and I completely agree with you. And he 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 he's very he is not reserved he doesn't write like a textbook when you read chesterton you read chesterton because you want to read chesterton yes when you see john mayer do like a guitar solo you go see him because you want to see him do a 15 minute guitar solo you don't just want to see him play the chords that are in the the hook of the song and and so what i mean is like when he writes a biography anything that chesterton writes is going to be a delivery system he is incredibly didactic right yeah which i love um, and he is incredibly prophetic. And when I say prophetic, I'm not talking about he can see the future like a clairvoyant. But he sees the trends in culture and he yeah. knows how to address them. He puts his thumb on them so precise, oh, so precisely. And yeah. I, you would wonder, like, what would Chesterton say if he was alive today? I, you know, the funny thing, a lot of times when we talk about, like, old thinkers and writers will use this line like well their head would explode like well if Aquinas was mm-hmm. around it I think Chesterton would go yeah I, oh, I saw this coming oh yeah well actually when I read his essays earlier this year so many of the topics he talked about I'm like he basically is describing <laughs> an earlier stage of what yep. we're currently yep. living uh-huh. in yep. yes. you know, maybe the technology <laughs> thing would be like everyone's looking at phones this is like a dystopia yeah but listen to this this quote from the from the book the saint is a medicine because he is an antidote. Indeed, that is why the saint is often a martyr. He is mistaken for a poison because he is an antidote. He will generally be found restoring the world to sanity, sanity excuse me, by exaggerating whatever the world neglects, which is by no means always the same element in every age. Yet each generation seeks, seeks its saint by instinct, and he is not what the people want but rather what the people need. Mm. I mean, that's just classic Chesterton. And that's Aquinas. Now, he's writing about Aquinas, turn of the century. I think this is the early 1900s when this book was published. Um, And you had a revival of of Thomism even back then. 
Okay. Um, which is obviously still going. I think you're, you're you're having kind of a second wave of that revival of Thomism okay. today. And he, he he says this about why that is happening. Let me try to find it. I, I wrote down the quote. He's saying that. Well, I can't find the quote. But oh, here we go. So as the 19th century clutched at the Franciscan romance. And if you don't know, he also wrote a book on St. Francis of Assisi. Right, right. Mm -hmm. So again, let me start the quote. So as the 19th century clutched at the Franciscan romance, precisely precisely because it had neglected romance, so the 20th century is already clutching at the Thomist rational theology because it has neglected reason. Ah, yeah. And I think when you you look at culture today and you you see um, no use of reason, all sentiment, Yes. A revival of Thomism makes sense. Oh, yeah. Um, and what we were talking about earlier with education, when you see kind of this one-size-fit-all industrialization of education where you know kids go sit in classroom and they memorize facts so they can participate in an economic system and it's yes. soul-crushing. Yes. Well, there's an antidote for that. Yep. And the antidote looks like poison to the establishment, right? They don't, they don't want it. And the same thing with like a Thomas rational, sane thinking – it's the antidote to, to what the, the, the world's dealing with. Well, can I interject there? Yeah. It is a poison because it has to kill the thing that is in the way of the better thing taking its place. But so it, you have to be willing to let go of what's not working. But that line, remember in the first quote, he says, Yet each generation seeks its saint by instinct, and he is not what the people want, yeah. but rather what the people need. And so what, what Chesterton did in this book is he gives you... I don't know if there's a lot, like I'm sure someone has written a biography on Aquinas, but with a lot of these medieval characters, I don't know how many specific details they have in their lives. So you you kind of have the, well, especially with saints, sure, these kind of legendary stories um, that that everyone knows. And it there's, depends how many primary sources we have. Those who have we know a lot through primary documents and like letters and correspondence, yeah. we have more. But they're usually more they're more recent, right? Like a contemporary. I, I don't. I mean, do you have a lot of that for people in the 1100s and the 1200s? Uh, yeah, actually, I think Raymond's biography of Saint Catherine of Siena, her confessor's biography, I think is pretty. I mean, he knew mm. her firsthand. So I think you have some of those exceptions where you have. Like, people were basically the term living saint. Like, people knew this person was probably going to be canonized. Like, they yeah. levitated or they, like, I mean, like, they knew. So, the people wrote, people kept good records. So, for some saints, I think we do. I think that's what's interesting about Aquinas is Aquinas, they called him the dumb ox. Yeah. Isn't that funny? It is. Arguably the greatest philosopher. Um, well, definitely. Yeah. The doctor of the church, right? The angelic doctor. Yeah. They call him the dumb ox because his personality and how he was like this kind of big, stocky guy. He, he seemed to come off very <clears throat> dim-witted like, yeah. when he would talk. But again, that was really to his, his advantage because what it made people do is focus on what he was saying and not how he was saying it. And so you can kind of see like God's handiwork and even the, 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 the his character and his disposition and how he communicated but I, this book, it was just absolutely wonderful. Um, I loved it from start to finish. Um, and he went through Aquinas' life, but again, as a delivery system for his ideas. And like with every Chesterton book, why does this matter, right? Like, what does this mean to us today? And let me let me read this one. This these I have a, two more quotes that I want to read that kind yeah. of encompass that. Um, 
again, here's a great Chesterton quote about Aquinas. Therefore, it is the paradox of history that each generation is converted by the saint who contradicts it the most. Wonderful. The work, now this is really, we're going to kind of get in a little bit of philosophy here. I'm going to try to keep it, I'm going to try to keep it. I think um, that's a good idea. Real like, I don't know, conversational. The work of heaven alone was material in the making of the material world. The work of hell is entirely spiritual. Now, that's a that's like a Chesterton quote that most people would be like, what? That's crazy. <laughs> but listen, what is distinct about Christianity than any other religion? The incarnation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay? A bodily resurrection. Yeah. Yeah. And and this is explicit in the New Testament, right? Thomas, I need to touch his, he ate with them. He he was physical, a physical resurrection. A lot of times when you go to a funeral, the the pastor, and hopefully the priest wouldn't do this, they're being, like they're saying heretical statements. This idea, this idea that the the spirit leaves the body and now the spirit is free and the body is bad. Right. And, you know, and we see these elements in a lot of theology. We see these elements with Luther. And this is something that he talks about in the book, where the only thing that is good is kind of this um, this spiritualism that's completely removed from the material world. But what we have with the incarnation with Jesus is something that totally confronts that. And Aristotle's philosophy lays, through Aquinas, lays a foundation to understand that we are in a material world, yeah. that that composite reality of spirit and, and flesh, and this is where we are, and goodness can be found in other things because God created all things. Uh, here's one more quote. In other words, the essence of the Thomist common sense is that two agencies are at work, reality and the recognition of reality, and their meeting is sort of a marriage. Indeed, it is, a very, it is very truly a marriage because it is fruitful, the only philosophy now in the world that is really fruitful. It produces practical results precisely because it is a combination of an adventurous mind and a strange fact. So what did Aquinas give us through his life and, and what did Chesterton do? He, he, he gave us enough of his life and peppered it with the ideas of, excuse me, Aquinas. This idea that this, this revitalism of this Aristotelian philosophy that our senses um, give us an, an, an indication of real reality. Yeah. And there are things that can be known. And God is present in the material world. And we go back to the incarnation and we can know truth. Yes. We can know things. Yes. It is not this nihilism. I was watching um, the other day, we were watching a little bit of this. Yeah. Uh, Father, or excuse me, Bishop Robert Barron was on Jordan Peterson, the Canadian um, psychologist's podcast. And they were talking about how specifically Peterson, and it's interesting the role that Jordan Peterson has kind of played because he's not a religious figure. He doesn't claim to be, but he says a lot of the people who've been affected by the new atheism will come and talk to him. Yeah. And they've kind of adopted this idea of new atheism. But new atheism leads to a nihilistic view of the world where, where nothing matters, nothing can be known, right. nothing means anything. Well, what does that do to the human person? It destroys them. Yeah. Why are suicide rates so high? Why is the opiate addict? I'm mean, sure there's a lot of reasons. But if you keep on telling people that life is meaningless, <laughs> eventually they might start acting like it's meaningless. They might, yeah. They, they might. might go, okay, so what does what Aquinas tell us? No, reality is real. These are real things, okay? 
flesh is real, the incarnation is real, and we can know these things, right? We We're can not, actually even know the things we can't see through the things that we can see. Well, well it's like, interesting. We actually, these are these are tools. And what, they're not. And they're also, not bad. And we're told too today with kind of this overemphasis on identity politics. Like, well, if you're this guy and you're from this neighborhood and you look this way and I'm this guy and I'm from this neighborhood and I look this way, we have nothing in common. Right. We have a completely different view of reality. Reject this idea at all costs. Yeah. Because what's funny is when I look at a chair and someone from somewhere else looks at a chair, we both see a chair. Yeah. Now, okay, has our experience framed that to a point? Yes. But not to, not to the extent... Where we, we're, we're lost in the cosmos and we can't interact with one another, we actually have a lot in common because sense perception is incredibly reliable. And the fact that we both know this is a chair and the reality of the chair is in the chair itself, right? The kind right. of the Aristotelian idea versus the Platonic idea of forms. Um, and why does this matter? Because we can know things. Um, and the, the whole kind of mystery with Aquinas is we can know that there is a God, right? Right, but <laughs> he's so beyond our thinking that this idea of kind of talking about him in a, in a specific nature, other than the incarnation, and right. a few things that we can kind of deduce through through reason. And so revelation. it's funny. I just sounded like I read a book on philosophy, which I did. And <laughs> my favorite kind of biographies, to be honest with you, are ones that do kind of communicate a specific takeaway or idea about that person's life. Yeah. Right? I don't just want to read a book about a person because it's full of interesting facts. I want to know what I can take away from this person. And I couldn't have found a better book um, written by a better person about a topic that is so relevant today. If you really do... Now, I wonder, because I've studied Aquinas for three years in my master's program. I wonder if someone who doesn't have a big-time background in Aquinas, if they've read this book, would they have the same takeaway that I did? Sure. Chesterton gets it, though. And he gets it in a way that I think some academics miss because they keep it incredibly theoretical. So I highly recommend this book. Um, was it long? No, it wasn't long. It wasn't long at all. I want to say it was probably a little over 100 pages. Oh, wow. I read it on Kindle because sometimes it's hard to kind of tell how yeah, long it is. Yeah, but it seems short. But no, it was one of the okay. shorter books that I've read. That's and, great. And like, Actually, he does have, yeah, well, his he books does have aren't, small ones. Yeah, he doesn't have these. Yeah, his book on St. Um, Francis is also... Uh, short. He, he does. I mean, orthodoxy is a little bit longer, but orthodoxy is still not super long. Right. Yeah. But you know, it's really funny. I'll leave with this. I, I read orthodoxy when I was in college because, like, every Christian was supposed to read orthodoxy, right? Like, but right. I didn't realize that Chesterton was Catholic. Like, oh, that interesting. Until, until years later. Until I, I started. See, I don't think I actually read orthodoxy until I became Catholic. And it was funny. Even back then, I was like, man, this guy. There was yeah. something intuitive that it spoke to me. Yeah. Like there was a solidness to his thought and thinking. So do I recommend it? 100%. But just know there's a lot of Chesterton guitar solos in this book. But that's why you read Chesterton. <laughs> you don't go to see The Dead and Company and get mad when John Mayer is ripping up a 10-minute guitar solo. That's why you went to see them. Yeah. You read Chesterton because you want a Chesterton intellectual guitar solo. And he does this with Aquinas, while at the same time clearly communicating the essence of why it's important that we know and we understand who Thomas Aquinas was and what Thomas Aquinas taught. That's awesome. Well, I read a biography about, um, it's a little bit different, but I loved mine as well. It's about, um, it's called Inside the Gate, Sigrid Unset's Life at 
Bjarkebeck, I think is how you say the name of her house. So it was fantastic. It had been recommended to me a couple people. Really loved it. And it got into a lot of, it told her story through a lot of correspondence, which I really love when you get to read people's letters back and forth and get to have a real insight into them. So I feel like this, because there have been other biographies of her, I have not read them. But this particular biography focused a bit more on some of those primary documents. And like, I mean, that's how the author found some of these more hidden details that hadn't been talked about before. And she really talked about what her private life was like a lot. Um, So she was born in Denmark, but lived in in Norway, Um, was Norwegian. Um, And she lived most of her life. So her home was outside in Lillehammer. Or out, I guess, in the countryside of Lillehammer. It's and funny because when I think of Lillehammer, they had the Winter Olympics there one year. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> that's, so people actually know where that is and what right. it looks like. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, I don't know how far outside, exactly outside of Lillehammer her home was. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, that was like the, the closest town, city. Um, and, yeah, you got to see what her life was like there. And she basically, so apparently people had houses moved like they had them they taken apart and put, and somewhere, put else. somewhere else this is like a common thing in in i, I don't know if in all sweden countries maybe but this it's is, because it was it was more efficient than like making more yeah, bricks maybe stuff. so so she had this house had been moved to this spot this is a, it's like the snapshot of the story starts at this very interesting time in her life before she really hits it big um, and right when her marriage is starting to be kind of hard. And so she has two children. Mm-hmm. The oldest has severe, um, developmental challenges. Mm. And so does for what, the rest of her life. time period is it? So this is like, uh, 1920s. Okay. At the time that it's, it's like, it's about 1919, 1920 when this, she's sort of starting. And you said her story. marriage was hard. What do you mean by that? Um, so she was married to an artist, Svartstad. Mistake number one. Yeah. So, but there was a very, um, very rom- like very romantic at first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very romantic at first. They met in Italy. Uh-huh. Um, fell in love. You know. Uh, but yes, I no. I think he tip- he definitely was one of these somewhat stereotypical painters that you know, hard to live with. Mm-hmm. Quirky personality. Um, they had so they had two children. She was pregnant with the third, the baby, and they were in a somewhat of a tumultuous financial state. Mm-hmm. She wanted to go live in Lillehammer, and he was kind of at that time Oslo was not Oslo yet. It was um, Christiana, I think, is what it was called. It hadn't changed its name to Oslo, so he was still staying in the capital. And she came to Lillehammer, needed was staying in a hotel and had to like, she was going to have a baby in a couple months, had to find a place. So she finds this place for rent, long story short, starts leasing it. And then she's able to purchase it like a couple years later after she sells a couple, I think it was right around the time that she wrote Kristen Laverne's daughter. Mm -hmm. Somewhere around there, 
she was making enough money. And actually, it's interesting. When, when she wrote that book, was that popular when it came out, or is it a book Pretty that became quickly. popular? Oh no, no, afterwards? very, very quickly. So she in was. Fact, it was very okay. So for those who don't know, she won the Nobel Prize. Did not win it Whoa. until 1928. But uh, Kristen daughter either came out in 19, or the last book. It's a trilogy. Came out, I think, in 1921 or 1922. So she was famous when she was alive. Very much okay. so. I mean, she was like, uh, yes, very much so. So. You got to see her. She all of a sudden had this income. And as an author, she got paid like an author stipend from the government. So it was an interesting situation. I'm not quite sure how that worked. But so she got money from that. She got she, money started streaming in regularly from all of her writing, especially though from Kristen Lavern's daughter and other of her novels that she was a known writer before that book. But I think that book really mm-hmm. put her on the map. And then... Um, so she continued writing, but that was kind of like the start of, I think, her fame and her financial stability. And she started building this sort of estate, like this this home, and she ended up building a whole other house onto it. She was a passionate gardener. She's just like a total naturalist, loved botany, loved studying plants. She's just loved, had a very deep love of plants, loved being out in her garden. She gathered planted plants from all over she tried to plant uh, she was in america for a while and tried to bring a dog whatever so she i you got to f- find out these things about her now what i like about this what was great about this biography is it also shed li- shed a lot of light on flaws and hard circumstances i mean i think she had a rough private life it's funny we were talking about chesterton and one of something he said from his essays that stuck with me the last few months is he says how important how the private life is so much more important than the public life and unsaid had a hard private life you know she was basically raising three children as well as her three stepchildren from her husband's first marriage um so she was kind of they weren't always living with her as well but she was also she was facilitating a lot of things for them and she was now having this growing estrangement from her husband who was doing his own thing, not wanting to live there and move with them. And she had challenges with her children. I mean, her daughter was severely handicapped and needed help. She, um, and even throughout her her sons growing up, she had a strained relationship with them off and on, even though they were loyal to her. it was There were hard things in her private life. And I think you see this so often with brilliant, and she just she is she's a she's just this amazing writer. She just captured the human experience so well. I've I've read two of her novels. I've read Kristen Lavin's Daughter, I mean the trilogy, and and then Gunner's Daughter, which is like an epic, but like a condensed epic, really short. Um, and then I've read her amazing biography of um, Saint Catherine of Siena. Um, but she was this. Her literary ability was amazing, but she had these, as you see with a lot of people, they have these amazing strengths, but these challenges in private life. And I think, I don't know, it, it's sort of, it's interesting when you see that, you know, you, mm-hmm. you just get to have an insight to, man. It's because it's easy, I think, even in our day and age to see the highlight reel, to right. see the, wow, but to not know that, well, you don't. We don't know what that person was going oh, through yeah. on a day to day basis, what their marriage was like, like you said. And it's inspirational that an artist like herself um, was still able to create beautiful things in the midst of 
real challenging circumstance. Well, I think one of the things there are so many parallels in Kristen Laverne's daughter of her own life. Like mm-hmm. you could you could definitely pick up on some themes. But I think that just because they're true of of life, you know, she just was accurately seeing a lot of that was that humans have in common the human um, condition. But so there's a lot of interesting things that were pulled out about her life. What I think I want to share is something very fascinating about how she was picked for the Nobel Prize. So like I said, her name was mentioned back in like 1921 or 22. But some people, oh man, I should have like flipped open to it. The the um, critique, um, pa- the reason to pass her over then was her... Writing's too feminine. <laughs> this is too, um, the style is too feminine. It's, 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 there's definitely like the sexism that was going on in, in the world mm-hmm. of literature. And even she didn't expect to win when she did win it in 1928 because a few years before a woman had gotten the Nobel Prize. So, okay, well, that's like the woman for the next couple of decades, yeah. right? So, so it was shocking that she did get get it anyway. And then what's interesting is she was passed over earlier, and then she ended up writing this like four volume epic about a man, and he was the it was not a heroine but a, a, a male in the leading role. And pe- people started saying, "Okay, so <laughs> I mean, it's just so crazy." Oh, she can write about something common to the male experience. She doesn't just write female literature mm-hmm. it's just crazy but th- that was sort of she they had put her in this box of like rather than acknowledging the fact that she speaking truly of human experience people obviously had their um narrow-minded view of what literature should look like which mm. probably looked very much like you know very just a narrow view so yeah did you mention who the author is of this book and the title of this book? Oh no! Well, I was I was going to say, but I'll, I mean, I'll say now. So she, her, the author's name, and it was this is actually in translation. But the author who wrote it is Nan Benson Skyle. Um, I hope I, I'm probably not saying her name correctly, but it's translated by um, Tina Nunnally, who is the same person who translated the most recent, I think, version of Kristen mm-hmm. Laverne's daughter. So she's a great translator. Um, but yeah, so that's the author. Anyhow, yeah, it was just interesting to read about the whole process for picking um, how she actually got chosen. That was kind of fascinating. And then also, anytime, so she lived right during, you know, during World War II and ended up leaving um very narrowly, actually, when Germany invaded Norway. And she came to the United States and lived here until the war ended and then went went back. So, and went back to a very, you know, different Norway. Um, a lot of her friends were starting to pass away as they were all getting older. And a lot of the neighborhood boys who had fought in the battles were no longer living. Her oldest son died as well in battle. Um, her daughter who was severely handicapped, I think it was, a, a, for her, she was relieved that she died early on in her adulthood because I think there was a fear that what if she outlives me and mm. I, who's going to take care of her? 
Um, and she had great help who, you know, servants and stuff who, who took, who took care of her too. So it, it was really interesting to see, um, just to get a snapshot of someone's life. You know, you, you had to leave your country because, you know, that, that significant war touched you. I mean, we, in America, we were involved in it, but we were on a different continent, you know, Yeah. in, in that, in that capacity. So, um. Yeah, she just, she had such an amazing life. That I'll end with this, though. The thing that really hit me, and I actually got kind of choked up. So she comes back, and toward the end of the book, I mean, the last chapter, as I was reading, and I had kind of forgotten about that nothing had been said about her biography of St. Catherine of Siena. Well, I get to the last chapter, and I come to find out that she wrote it within the last two years of her life. Like, Mm. she... And it kind of hit me. It struck me as this very... That book for me, when you want to talk about biographies, and I think I mentioned it in the last episode, was super moving. Um, St. Catherine is my confirmation saint. And I didn't know why I picked her, when I picked her, but while I was in the middle of reading uh, Unset's biography of her, I had this complete revelation moment of, oh, this is why I picked this saint, or this is why this saint was picked for me, really. And... It was a just profoundly moving biography that set the standard for me for biographies. It was just amazing. So I had this moment where here's this amazing woman, this amazing writer. She won the Nobel Prize. She had written such wonderful literature. And it's not until the end of her life um, that she wrote this, this last book, this last piece of work that I don't know if it, I had this thought of that almost didn't happen, but... She, I think what's amazing is she just kept working until the end of her life. And it made me think, what if we all live that way? You know, you read biographies of famous people because they've done inspiring things or they've contributed to humanity in some way that is profound, that someone wants to tell their story. And part for some of those people, they just keep doing what they've been gifted to do until they aren't here to do it anymore. And what if she just stopped writing, you know, five years before she died? And she never wrote that last book. Um, I don't know. There's just something there that's very, very cool. Yeah, uh, about that. So I highly recommend it. If if you've loved her her books and read any of her um, stuff, I think you'll really, I think you would enjoy this biography. It certainly made me want to visit Norway and definitely her home. Like it's on the oh, bucket very, list. We got to like, do that. I, yeah, I want to. Well, <laughs> want to go there. It was a good month. We both really liked our books. We hope you liked your uh, biographies and, and stay tuned for next month, which we'll probably record in a couple of days. We'll post these um, pretty close together. A book of poetry, which yes. is, is going to be very different from what we've what we've read so far. So God bless. We hope you're all doing well, and we look forward to talking to you again. Bye.